0: Chapter Five of History of the Norwegian People, Volume One by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: The Migrations. From 400 A.D., Rome was fighting her last desperate battles with the conquering hosts of Germanic warriors, and like a bleeding gladiator, was fast tottering to her fall. The legions were withdrawn from Gaul and Britain for the defence of the Italian Peninsula, but this served only to give the untiring victors new vantage ground. The weakened defences of the frontiers were forced. Gaul and Spain were overrun, Rome was sacked, the empire was crumbling to pieces before the onset of this new race, destined to wrest the scepter of empire from the withering hands of Rome that they might teach the world new lessons. The peoples of Germany were no longer unskilled barbarians unacquainted with culture. Since the days of Emperor Augustus, they had followed the Roman eagles as soldiers of the legions, from the Praetorian Guard in Rome to the remotest provinces of the empire. They now possessed great skill in the art of war, They had great leaders, excellent arms, and an efficient military organization as they had attained to a high degree of general culture, gained through long periods of development, and finally through direct contact with the Roman world. This accounts for their victory over Rome in this most notable contest for world power. That the warriors from Scandinavia also took part in the expeditions against the Roman Empire can be seen from the great treasures of gold brought to the north during this period. At Tereholm near Trasse in Sweden were found in 1774 articles of gold weighing altogether 25 pounds, the actual metal value of which at the present time would be $7,214. So many similar treasures have been found that it is regarded as certain that they are the spoils of warlike expeditions against Rome, or part of the tribute paid the Germanic peoples by the emperors of the last Roman Empire during the 5th century. The first Germanic peoples who crossed the borders of the Roman Empire were the Cimbri and the Toitones, they came from the peninsula of Jutland and appeared in the Roman province of Noricum in 113 BC. Their combined fighting force is said to have numbered 300,000 men, and they repeatedly defeated the Roman armies sent against them. The terror in Rome was so great that the expression terror Cimbricus became proverbial. In 104 BC, Gaius Marius, the hero of the war against Jugurtha, was made consul and general. He took the field with a large and well-disciplined army, in 102, he met the Teutones in southern Gaul and destroyed them in the Battle of Aquae Sextiae. The next year, he annihilated the Cimbri, who had penetrated into the Po Valley in Upper Italy. The size of the fighting forces of these great migrating hosts indicates that other tribes must have joined them on their southward march. The Herules, a people who played a conspicuous part in the migrations, came from southern Scandinavia. Jordanus says that they were driven from their homes by the Danes, and Procopius states that when their king died, they sent to their own royal race in Thule for a leader. Very early in the period, they migrated southward into the region north of the Danube, where they founded a kingdom. A part of their force joined the army of Adaphekar, and aided him in destroying the West Roman Empire. According to Procopius, their kingdom was destroyed by the Longobards, with whom they were waging war. Some of them sought refuge in the East Roman Empire, and some returned to Scandinavia, taking up their abode near the Gautar where they seem to have had their original home. The Gautar and the Swedes, Svier or Sviones, are the first peoples in the Scandinavian north which passed out of mere tribal organization and founded kingdoms of some strength and importance. The Gautar inhabited Gotland, a region around the Great Lakes Vannern and Vettern in Sweden. The Swedes founded the kingdom of Svithiod, which embraced the tribes and territories farther north, around Lake Mälaren. They gradually enlarged their dominions until all Sweden was united under the rule of their kings. The Swedes were closely related to the Goths, among whom kingship had reached a much higher development than in western Germany, where the kings were still mere tribal chieftains and leaders of the armed host. Among the Goths, the king was the ruler of his people, a national sovereign who traced his lineage to the gods themselves. This institution of national kingship also obtained among the Swedes, and it is probable that they had adapted it from their Gothic kinsmen, The royal seat and centre of the kingdom was Uppsala, the oldest and most famous sanctuary in Sweden. The king served also as priest in the great temple there, and this union of the priestly with the royal office must have tended to strengthen greatly the power and influence of the kings of Uppsala. They were of the Silfing family, a royal race which had ruled in Svitjod long before historic times, and were supposed to be the descendants of the god Frey, who, according to tradition, had built the temple at Uppsala. The Angles, Saxons, and Utes who effected the conquest of England, came from the Kimbrick peninsula. The Saxons were a German tribe dwelling north of the Elbe in what is now Holstein. Ptolemy says that they lived on the neck of the Kimbrick Chersonesus. From the 3rd century, they are frequently mentioned by Roman historians as marauders in the North Sea. North of the Saxons, in what is now Schleswig, dwelt the Angles. Their name is still preserved in Angeln, a district in southern Schleswig. They are mentioned by Ptolemy, and Tacitus speaks of them in connection with several other tribes, as worshippers of the goddess Nerthus. King Alfred says that northwest of the Saxons lies the land called Angle, Angeln, and Selende, Sealand, and a part of the Danes. Bede, in his account of the conquest, says, From the Angles, that is, from the region which is now called Angulus, and which is said to have remained from that day till now depopulated, lying between the boundaries of the Utes and the Saxons, came the East Angles, the Mid-Angles, the Mercians, and all the race of Northumbrians who dwelled north of the river Humber. They seem to have inhabited the greater part of Schleswig, possibly also some of the Danish islands. They must have migrated to Britain during the conquest, since Bede states that their country was depopulated from that day. The Utes are a more obscure people. They have given their name to Jutland, the northern part of the Kimbric Peninsula, where they are thought to have dwelt as early as 100 AD, though they are not mentioned by Ptolemy. They are believed to be the Oidoses mentioned by Tacitus. To them belonged Hengist and Horsa, the chiefs of the Anglo-Saxon host which invaded Britain. The Angles and Saxons were related to low German tribes, but the Utes seem to have been of Danish origin. The Danes inhabited southern Sweden and the Danish Isles. The first account of them is given by Jordanus, who says that they came from Scandinavia and that they drove away the Heroles. Procopius states that a part of the Heroles, returning northward to their old homes, came to the ocean no doubt the Baltic Sea. From there, they wandered through the Danish territories, whence they returned to Thule. From about 500, the Danes entered upon a period of remarkable development and greatness. Their kings, the Sholdungs, Sildings, dwelt at Lyre in Sealand, where they built the royal hall Herot, celebrated in the old English poem Beowulf. In 515, their king Higlac, Huglec, made an expedition against the Hetwara near the mouth of the Rhine, where he fell in battle. He is, no doubt, the Chachilaisus, mentioned by Gregory of Tours, and the Gesta Regum Francorum, who, on an invasion of the lower Rhineland, lost his life in a battle against the Frankish prince Theodebart in 515. In 565, the Danes made another similar expedition westward. They fought many hard battles, especially with the Heathobirds dwelling south of the Baltic Sea. These landed on Sealand at one time, and advanced almost to Herat, but they were defeated by King Hrothgar, Ror, and his nephew Hrothulf, Rolf Krake. Rolf Krake became the ideal king and semi-mythical hero of tradition, who is said to have been slain in his royal hall, together with his twelve champions in a treacherous night attack. The Danes were at this time the most renowned people in the north, though the Swedes rivaled them in warlike achievements as well as in wealth and power. The Swedish kings waged war with the Danes, and made expeditions into Estonia, and other regions east of the Baltic. Their royal family was the oldest in the north, and their kingdom, Svitjod, had risen into prominence before that of the Danes. No such united national kingdom had yet been founded in Norway, as in Sweden and Denmark, but kings ruled here also, and the tribes had formed larger unions in different parts. Jordanus speaks of the Norwegian king Rudolf, who, fleeing from his own country, went to Theoderic the Great in Italy and became his man. Rudolf seems to have ruled over a confederation of tribes in southern Norway. The old English poem, Widsith, and more especially Beowulf, preserves many traces of historic events, and of social life in Denmark and southern Scandinavia in the 6th century. The detailed descriptions of arms and customs given in Beowulf, no doubt, reflect quite accurately many features of the life of the chieftains and their followers during the 6th and 7th centuries. hiorgar Hrothgar, and Halga are the sons of Helfdane, of the dynasty of the Shieldings, Sholdungs. Hrothulf, son of Halga, is the Rolfkrakes so famous in Danish tradition. Hrothgar builds the hall Herot at Lyre in Sealand, a feature of the tradition which preserves the memory of the power of the Danish kings at that time. Beowulf, a nephew of King Hegelach, comes with a band of followers to help Hrothgar against the monster Grendel. After the military guards of the coast have permitted him to land, He proceeds to Herat with his companions. They have shields, helmets, and brinnies of ringmail, and are in every way well-armed and trained warriors. They are courteously received, and are entertained in the most hospitable manner. Then Welthio, the queen, entered the lady mindful of good manners. Adorned with golden ornaments, she came to greet the guests. She first gave the drinking cup to the king of the Danes, and asked him to partake at their banquet. He gladly took the cup, and accepted the entertainment. She went all about, this high-minded lady from the country of the Helmings, and gave gifts to young and old, till the opportunity came when the ringidor and Queen handed the mead cup to the Prince of the Geatsas, and she thanked God that her wish had been fulfilled, that at last she could expect from an earl help out of their difficulties. Beowulf 608-629 When Beowulf had succeeded in killing Grendel, there was great joy at Heorot, and many came from far and near to see what had happened. When the festivities at the hall were at their height, a scop or scald arose. Everyone became silent and listened to what he might have to say. He sang of Beowulf's journey, and every old song which he had heard of Sigmund, and of many an unknown heroic deed. About Volsung's combats and distant journeys, about battles and malice, of which none of the children of men yet knew, save he and Fitella alone. Beowulf eight seventy two to eight eighty. Sigmund the Volsung is the father of Siegfried, or Sigurd, the slayer of Fafnir, so well known from the Elderetta, the Volsunga Saga, and the Nibelungenlied, and Fitella the Sinfiotl, Sigurd's half-brother. Then the king himself, the giver of rings, stepped from his queen's apartment, rich in glory, with an excellent band of followers, and the queen walked with him into the festive hall with her train of maids. Beowulf 920-925. The cultural life of this period must not be judged by 20th-century standards. Still, there was among these earlier ancestors of ours, not only a very considerable civilization in the externals of life, but intellectual culture and a spirit of refinement were not wanting. They appreciated art and fine manners. They had lofty sentiments and noble virtues, less polished, but probably no less vigorous and constant than those which have graced society in later ages. The migrations checked the peaceful intercourse which the Germanic peoples had hitherto maintained with the Roman Empire, and the necessity of supplying their wants through their own skill and industry, created by this change, made itself more strongly felt. The ideas and cultural elements which had been borrowed from the Romans could now be better assimilated, and the native mind began to put its own impress even on articles of luxury, which were now, to a great extent, produced at home. The gold brass of this period bear evidence of this transition from Roman to native industry and art. These are ornaments and amulets of gold made in imitation of Roman coins. Besides the original image of the Roman emperor, they are often ornamented with runes, and sometimes with quite original designs representing Thor driving his goats, or Odin with his horse and ravens. The beautifully decorated helmets, swords, shields, buckles, necklaces, and other articles made by native metalworkers show these to have been veritable masters in their art. These articles are made with artistic skill and taste. Some are of pure gold, others of gold-plated bronze or silver with ornaments of filigree and inlaid jewels. Pictures on helmets show the style of dress worn both by men and women in this period. The men wore a coat reaching to the knees and fastened about the waist with a belt. It was edged with fur, it had sleeves, and was ornamented in various ways. Trousers were also worn. The lady wore a dress, sometimes ornamented in front with embroidered bands. She wore shawl and necklace, while her hair seems to have hung loose over the shoulders. Different modes of burial prevailed during this period. The bodies of the dead were sometimes burned, and a mound was, as a rule, thrown up over the charred remains, and a rune stone was erected on the mound. Sometimes the body, together with weapons and ornaments, was buried in a carefully constructed grave. Over the grave a mound might be constructed, or stones might be set up around it. The dead, both men and women, were often buried in boats. In 880, a ship was found in a burial mound at Gokstad, near Sandefjord in Norway, the blue clay of the mound having preserved it from decay. The vessel, which is made of oak planks, is 80 feet long and 16 feet wide. It has a mast and 16 pairs of oars. Around the ship was hung a row of shields colored black and yellow alternatively. A chieftain, no doubt the owner of the vessel, had been buried in it. A burial chamber is constructed in the stern, where the body was placed on a bed furnished with a feather mattress. The grave had been robbed of all ornaments of precious metals, but a complete supply of articles belonging to the outfit of a ship at that time was found. Among these articles were several bedsteads, a sleigh, a bronze kettle, and many kitchen utensils also the bones of twelve horses, six dogs, and some birds, which evidently had been sacrificed at the burial. The ship is supposed to date from about 900. In 1904, another ship was uncarved in a large mound at Osseberg near Tunsberg in southern Norway. Two women were buried in it, one of high birth, possibly a queen, the other evidently a maidservant. The ship was packed with goods, both fore and aft. Several bedsteads, a sleigh, a four-wheeled wagon, the queen's shoes, and her trunk-containing toilet articles were among the objects found. Most of the articles, as, for example, the sleigh in the wagon, are decorated with wood carving so exquisitely done that they are real treasures of beauty. The ship, which is now fully restored, is 68 feet long and had been beautifully ornamented. It is more tastefully made than the Gokstad ship, and it is regarded as certain that it is the Queen's own pleasure yacht. The find dates from about 800 A.D., Together, the articles present a picture of civilization most interesting and impressive. It is quite evident that the districts around the Baltic Sea, and more particularly the Scandinavian countries, possessed a culture superior in many ways to that of any other region of the continent north of the Alps. The population seems to have been denser here than elsewhere. Nowhere else are the graves from early periods so numerous as in this region, and nowhere are the relics of stone, bronze, and other metalwork so tastefully designed or so skillfully made. When Tacitus says of the Estonians that they raise more grain than is otherwise customary among the Germans, it is only another bit of evidence of the superior culture than existing on the shores of the Baltic Sea. End of chapter 5